Cuba Libre. Welcome to Turn of the Century, a podcast about the turn of the 20th century. I'm Joe Hawthorne, and today we're talking about the Cuban War or Wars of Independence. A free Cuba means different things to different people. For some, it's about fighting Western imperialism. For others, it's about anti-communist or anti-Castro sentiment. And for many thirsty adults, uh, Cuba Libre simply means a rum and coke. But at the end of the 1800s, North and South Americans had some more unified ideas about Cuban freedom. This was about overthrowing the Spanish Empire in the Caribbean. Local revolutionaries campaigned to end Madrid's despotic rule over the island. And they succeeded. But nothing is ever that simple when you're 90 miles from the United States. Cuba would grow to become one of the most influential and contested countries in the world. How did we get here? Caribbean history professor Luis Perez Jr. explains the roots of the Cuban Revolution. Before Castro, before U.S. intervention, what were the Cubans fighting for? And why did North Americans decide to even get involved? This week, we look at the roots of Cuban liberation. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're talking with Caribbean and Cuban history professor Luis Perez Jr. We're talking about Cuba, the wars of independence at the turn of the 20th century, right around the 1890s. Of course, there are wars before then as well. But anyone who's listened earlier knows that I'm very interested in 1898, early U.S. imperialism, and all the adventures of our friends like Theodore Roosevelt, uh, David Fagan, etc. But I wanted to back up before we get to 1898 to learn about Cuba, this island and country that will be and is so important in world history. So first of all, Professor Perez, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So as I was just alluding to before, let's jump right into things. In the early 1890s, leading up to 1898, what was the state of Cuba? That's a question you could spend a whole term or maybe a whole year talking about. But how would you summarize the general state of Cuba in the 1890s? The, by the 1890s, Cuba had developed um, a fairly sophisticated cosmopolitan culture. And in this sense, I'm referring principally to the principal cities with Havana and the provincial capitals in Santiago, in Matanzas, in Cienfuegos, uh, the, the provincial cities uh, that had developed an urban culture of some sophistication, of, of some high culture, uh, of music, of art, of theater, of literature. Um, sugar had had made this a very cosmopolitan island, again, certainly from the from its urban uh, focal points. Um, it was very much a, um, certainly Havana was very much an Atlantic city in the um, in the in the world in world markets um, with trade with the United States and Europe, uh, increasingly uh, a city a, a nation that was coming into its own and beginning to aspire to independence uh, that had been uh, repeatedly tried in the earlier part of the century, but in point of fact had failed. So when we get to the eighteen nineties, 
when the historian looks at Cuba in the 1890s, one sees a series of contradictions that, uh, on one hand, uh, a highly cosmopolitan, um, engaged country. On the other hand, a very poor country, a country in which the the racial hierarchies continue to perpetuate uh, racial structures and racism. Um, Cuba had just come out of slavery in 1886, uh, so there is a considerable amount of racial tension in this country. And at the same time, a country that was now beginning to articulate a sense of national identity and a sense of itself and beginning to prepare for what would be the next war for independence that would break out in 95, 1895. And so I'm glad you mentioned uh, the wars as well. And you brought up so many different topics about economy, culture, identity, politics. And so looking at the kind of statecraft, what was Cuba in the 1890s? You know, how did Cubans think of their island in the 1890s? Well, it's difficult to make a generalization of how Cubans, you know, we are, in this sense, it would be best to identify Cubans who are uh, who have an out, outward-looking and Cubans who have an inward-looking perspective. Uh, Cubans engage in the world. Cubans, we'd say mostly white Cubans, middle-class Cubans, uh, professionals, white collars, teachers, uh, attorneys, physicians are are uh, enormously enormously um, uh, engaged. In the world, many of them are educated abroad, many educated in the United States, uh, and that includes physicians and, and, and trade and commerce and industry. Um, so there is that part of Cuba, just a white middle class, and I'm not talking about, in this sense, the, the planter class or the producing classes that control most of the wealth. I'm talking about an increasingly large, by today's standards, we call a white collar middle class. And then increasing vast numbers of Cubans of color, blacks and mulattoes, who are now beginning to uh, emerging be first generation ex-slaves or multi-generations of ex-slaves who are beginning to articulate a politics of incorporation into Cuban society. So on one hand, you have a population that is seeking to, to establish a place of security and well-being within the country. And then you have another, another group of Cubans who are looking to establish themselves uh, with respect in the family of nations of the world, that is, an independent, sovereign republic. So you have these two tendencies, these two forces that are acting on each other and, and in many ways shaping the direction that the Cubans' war for independence will take. And so how does that... And so how do those two directions, or multiple directions, affect the fact that Cuba at this point is still a colony, is still part of the Spanish Empire. What's the kind of relationship or dynamic there? Uh, that's the question. <laughs> uh, the short answer, um, that as the wars for independence sweep across Spanish America in the early 19th century, it happens that Cuba had just uh, um, entered the world of sugar production as a result of the collapse of, the, of sugar in what will become Haiti. The Haitian Revolution, uh, for all intents and purposes, produces a, the collapse of what was the, one of the world's largest, most productive, um, and the most barbaric slave systems in the Western world. Uh, 
That means the opportunity for Cubans to move into sugar production presented itself at the turn of the century. That is at the time that independence movements were breaking out all over the Western Hemisphere, starting with the United States, then Haiti, then Mexico, and then across Mexico all the way to Argentina. Bad timing for the Cubans, because this was wars for independence in which um, the Cuban Creoles, the Cuban whites, certainly shared many of the grievances that distinguished their counterparts in the mainland. But the idea that Cubans would opt at this time for independence um, was counterintuitive. The island was filling with hundreds of thousands of slaves between the early 1800s and 1840s. And the idea that the Cubans would then risk um, their new prosperity, newfound prosperity, with a war for independence that would also possibly, they feared, precipitate a slave uprising, for all intents and purposes, locked Cuba into Spanish colonialism as a means of well-being and security, to defend Spanish sovereignty and colonial administrations as a means for the protection of, of property, of racial hierarchies, of production, and privilege. So from the beginning of the 19th century to the end of the 19th century, we have a, a the elite, uh, the planter class, the producing classes, both Creole and Spanish, who were very much fearful of independence and who very early associated independence with the with chaos, calamity, race war um, that became fixed in the, the popular imagination of the, of the uh, producing classes of Cuba. So you have that then, you have this bifurcation of, as I mentioned, the, the middle classes who are beginning to look forward into looking forward to independence, and the, the producing classes very linked to the defense of Spanish sovereignty as a means of security for property and privilege. So what changes then? Uh, you know, it sounds like it's, uh, it, it sounds like one of the main things to change is that you have a, a planter class, you have more Creole or Spanish descendants that are starting to become more skeptical of the Spanish empire. But what starts to change in the 1870s, the 1890s? It begins changing uh, at mid-century. It begins to change as the idea of sovereign nationhood enters the Cuban popular imagination. The Cubans always had grievances against Spain. Uh, those grievances never disappeared. They waxed and they waned, they intensified or not. And so through the 19th century, as more and more Cubans um, obtain the opportunity to study abroad, to visit the United States, to visit Europe, to travel, um, the, the more ideas of change, and I go back to my earlier comments about a cosmopolitan society that is increasingly well-read, well-informed, uh, it travels. Um, there's a huge Cuban community that takes place, that it develops in Florida, in Tampa, in Key West. Um, there's, a, there's a traffic back and forth between Florida and Cuba. Cubans in, in New Orleans, Cubans in Savannah, Cubans in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, um, who are going there to be educated, who are going there to get some of this even primary, secondary education, professional training. In other words, Cuba becomes aware of a, of a larger world. And increasingly, the fact that the Cuban economy is tied to the North American economy, 
means that there's a kind of bifurcated uh, colonialism. One is the political colonial rule of, that Spain executes from, from, uh, from Europe. And then increasing Cuban dependency in American markets, American technology, American industry uh, to subsidize its uh, expanding economy. In other words, that what Cuba needs to sustain economic growth cannot be found in Spain. And increasingly, the Cubans turn to Europe and especially the United States to subsidize. All by way of saying is that the Cubans become familiar with a wider world. And this is a time of of people um, of, of increasing political ideologies of socialism, of anarchism, of various types of utopian socialism, of Cubans seeing, witnessing this, the, the suffrage movement uh, in the United States. In other words, this is the time, the second half of the 19th century um, becomes a time of kind of political awakening for, for many people uh, in the world, and especially the Cubans who are present who are present in this country and watching this unfold before their very eyes. So this idea of nation, of sovereignty, of self-determination, slowly begins to insinuate itself in the political calculus of what it means to be Cuban. And somewhere in the 19th century, we could, I think historians may disagree about when, but anywhere between the 1860s and the, in the 1890s, Cubans get it into their head that they have a right uh, to claim, aspire, and exercise sovereign nationhood, self-determination, national independence, which becomes this searing idea that begins to galvanize increasing numbers of Cubans, uh, working class and middle class alike, and including, and including, let me add, some members of the planter aristocracy, blacks and whites, men and women. Um, what makes the Cuban independence movement of the latter years of the 19th century different from the independence movement to the beginning of the 19th century is that the Cuban concept of, of, of national independence was never defined as an end. It was always a means. They invested an extraordinary amount of expectation in a nation that would address the maladies and the afflictions that affected Cuban society, that the new Cuba would address and deal with racism, that the new Cuba, the free and independent Cuba, would deal with inequity and poverty, that the new Cuba and sovereign Cuba would address issues of democracy. In other words, there is a social agenda to what is emerging in the 1880s and 90s in Cuba. This is not simply separation for Spain as an end. This is separation from Spain as a means. Gotcha. And so then going to a kind of scene on the ground, how does 1895 unfold? How does the most recent, I guess we'll say, or we might rephrase that, how does this newest conflict, this newest war for independence, how does this newest war for independence unfold? And what happens in the years from 1895 up to 1898? It unfolds the way many of the other wars began and you know, and, and failed. Um, it builds on the War of 1868, what was known as the Ten Years' War. It builds on another revolution of 1879-80, which is known as the Little War. And then between 1880 and 1895, there are a series, maybe a half dozen, ten 
stillborn uh, rebellions, some lasting a matter of days and weeks, some lasting months, but this kind of continued repetition, continued efforts to, to, to mobilize. And in 1895, by which time this movement now had established very firm roots in exile communities, emigrate communities in the United States, um, bound together in what is probably, uh, I think it's important to look at the Cuban War for Independence 1895 as the beginning of the 20th century. Um, this is what we could clearly identify as the first war of national liberation, what will become so common in the 20th century as far as the anti-colonial movements. Uh, so Cuba, under the leadership of Jose Martí, creates a revolutionary party, the Cuban Revolutionary Party, that begins to coordinate and prepare for war. And so you have a political leadership of the revolution and you have a military leadership of the revolution uh, acting acting in concert, sometimes more, sometimes less, um, to direct the war that begins in February 1895. It begins in the eastern end of the island, and by the end of the first year, by the end of 1895, has expanded deep into the western provinces um, and has now the, the Spanish government on its heels. Um, the presence of the Spanish, of the Cuban forces in Western Cuba sent shockwaves throughout, the, uh, throughout Spain. You mentioned U.S. connections several times, talking about economic, political. I think there's also military angles we can look at, too. So just to zero in a little bit on this more, how would you describe the nuanced relationship between the United States and Cuba going into the 1890s and 1898? I'm not so certain that it's so nuanced. Um, I, 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 it's important to, to contextualize what is happening in Cuba to, to set in some larger frame Cuban expectations. As I said a moment ago, somewhere in the 19th century, Cubans got into their head that they had a right to self-determination and national sovereignty. In a word, independence. Uh, Cuba for Cubans. Um, a nation that would address Cuban woes and afflictions and grievances and complaints. On one hand. And on the other, you have an American policy that may very well be one of the most consistent, um, one of the most consistent um, policies that are followed by the Americans from the time of Adams and Jefferson through Cleveland and McKinley. That is to say, from the beginning of the 19th century to the end of the 19th century. And that is that under no circumstances could the United States um, acquiesce to the existence of a free, sovereign, independent Cuba. There is no policy, that I shouldn't say no, no. There are few policies in American, certainly international relations, diplomatic history, that are so consistently hewed to by successive political administrations in the 19th century as the proposition that Cuba cannot be transferred by Spain to any other power. Um, with the acquisition of Louisiana in, what was it, 1803, 
with the acquisition of Florida in 1821, uh, the Americans, the United States had expanded southward, and suddenly the United States looked at its what what, what it, and the Americans perceived to be its southern frontier, and that was Cuba. And the recognition that if a hostile power were to establish a presence on the island of Cuba, uh, that hostile power could threaten American strategic interests in the Gulf of Mexico, and especially through that 90-mile stretch of water that separates the United States, Key West, from the north coast of Cuba. So under no circumstances, and this is consistent, um, this is persistent, um, where the Americans are perfectly uh, have accommodated to the presence of Spain in Cuba because Spain is perceived to be a non-threatening power. But the Americans make it very clear, starting from Jefferson and all the way through McKinley, Cleveland and McKinley, that the United States will not allow uh, and would not permit Spain to transfer sovereignty of Cuba to a third power. Okay, so what we have here is two people, two countries on an absolute straight collision course where the Cubans are, are hell-bent uh, in the last half of the 19th century to secure a national independence and sovereignty, and the Americans equally hell-bent to prevent Cuba from becoming a, to prevent Spain from transferring the sovereignty of Cuba to another power. Now, let me add that typically historians read this as that they would not, the United States would not allow Spain to transfer Cuba to France or to Prussia or to England. Okay. And that's the conventional interpretation of this. But in point of fact, that also implies and indeed activates the, the proposition that Cuba is far too important for American national interest to allow the Cubans to assume sovereignty over the island. The logical conclusion is that the United States will not allow Spain to transfer the sovereignty of Cuba, not even to the Cubans. And so what we have again and again and again through the 1820s through the 1890s, the Americans saying repeatedly that so the 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 warning that the that the Americans will not allow Spain to transfer the sovereignty or possession of Cuba to a third power is backed is backed by a threat. And that threat is that news that Spain contemplated transferring the sovereignty of Cuba to a third power would be, and I'm quoting a mid-century, um, a mid-century Secretary of State said, would be, and I'm, I think I'm quoting correctly, um, would be the instant signal for war. And some, um, the Americans threatened war to prevent Spain from ceding sovereignty of Cuba to another power. It was unacceptable that Spain would um, allow the island of Cuba to pass under the control of any country other than the United States. And through the 19th century, the Americans periodically made an offer to buy Cuba two or three times, and the Spanish refused. Um, 
so then we have this, as I said, we have this this extraordinary, uh, you know, standing on top of a mountain and seeing two cars coming at each other. You see the Americans on one hand and the Cubans on the other. Um, the Cubans aspiring to to um, Cubans seeking to make good on aspirations that the Americans have said is it will never happen. Um, and that's where we are when the Cuban War for Independence enters its second and third year. How do Cuban leaders manage or try to manage the United States interests? How are they trying to get support from the U.S., but also not just be invaded by the United States? The Cubans in Cuba are not unduly concerned with the United States as far as the conduct of the war is concerned. Um, they have their strategies. They have their policies, they have their politics, they have their methods. There is a whole group of Cubans operating in the United States that are providing moral support, material support, who are sending what are known at the time expeditions of of, uh, arms and medicines and clothing and supplies and equipment that are being run out of the United States. Many of them intercepted by by the American Treasury Department. Um, and the, the the Cubans the Cubans have taken the position that um, they will rely on their own resources, uh, and many of the most prominent leaders in Cuba who were engaged on the fields of, of combat have uh, had indicated on several occasions that, as far as they're concerned, they would be perfect. They, they would prefer the Americans do not get involved. What they would want was kind of recognition of belligerency status that they would appreciate it. Uh, but in point of fact, they were prepared to complete complete their war um, with the resources available to them uh, and secure by force of arms Cuban independence. And so as we start to wrap up this look at Cuba in the 1890s and the war for independence, what do you think would have happened if the U.S. hadn't been involved? Or how were events proceeding right up before the USS Maine in 1898? Um, the Spanish uh, unleashed a, an extraordinary war effort against um, the Cubans uh, at tremendous cost to themselves. Tens of thousands of Spanish soldiers, officers, and men perished, not necessarily as a result of battle and combat, but tens of thousands succumbed to yellow fever and malaria and dysentery and all sorts of affirmities and illnesses that operate, that, that attend operations in, in, in the Caribbean, in the tropical country. Um, Spain was prepared to bankrupt itself uh, to defend Cuba. Um, and as we move into 18, the end of 18, 1896, 97, uh, the war had taken a wicked turn because the, the, the Spanish general, uh, governor general, had determined that it was necessary to remove the entire civil population out of the countryside into reconcentration camps to deny Cubans uh, the support of the peasant population. Um, 
again, let me let me repeat what I said earlier. This is this is a this is the first war of this is the first guerrilla war of national liberation. These were the policies that the Americans used in Vietnam, where they called the fortified hamlets. Move all the people out of the countryside. One, to deprive the insurgents of the support and intelligence and food and medicine that, that the uh, country folk provide. And two, makes it very easy. Anybody who's outside the fortified centers or the reconcentration camps are ipso facto the enemy. So it's a clear kind of black and white. Um, and so hundreds of thousands of Cuban, what we call pacificos, uh, the, the, the peasant population, to move out of the countryside Hundreds of thousands, and we don't know how many died. You know, it could have been, could be 100, 200, 300,000 Cubans perished in these camps. Um, and so the war had taken a, 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 as I said, a wicked turn, and the Cubans in arms were undeterred and we, whose commitment was undiminished. And so this war goes into 97, 98, and by 97, 98, the cost of the war in Spain is coming home to roost. Um, we now enter what is probably the most controversial in terms of the debate of historians is to, uh, and to I guess to respond to your question is what is the state of the Cuban War in as 1898 begins and the, the, the main is chugging its way toward Havana Harbor in um, in, in I guess it gets there in late January, early February. Early February. Um, Cuban historians have insisted that the Cubans were winning the war, um, that the Cubans were, in fact, would have won the war with one more rainy season. Um, one more tropical summer would have dealt the Spanish army a serious blow. The Cubans were persuaded and that would have been the end of Spanish sovereignty and culminating in Cuban independence. Um, the vast majority of American historians, with save some exceptions, uh, would argue that Cubans were on hard times, they would not have won the war, and that the United States came in and delivered the, 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 the final blow, which is correct, delivered the coup de grace to a sagging uh, Spanish effort. Um, were the Cubans winning the war? Would the Cubans have won the war with another three months, four months, five months of, 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 uh, of combat? We do not know. What we do know, what we do know, uh, and we can document and we can verify, is that the consensus of opinion at the time, and let's say at the time being from January 1st, 1898, until the declaration of war in April 1898, and before. The consensus of opinion from American diplomats in Cuba, and that is when I say diplomats, I mean the U.S. Consul General in Havana and all the vice consuls in the smaller cities, um, American business people, American visitors, um, the Cubans, of course, and increasing numbers of Spaniards are reaching the conclusion that Spain cannot restore its sovereignty that the days of Spanish sovereignty in, in Cuba are numbered and the numbers are few. In other words, what we have, what we, can, what we can document is the perception 
the perception that Spain cannot hold on, that Spain cannot sustain and continue a war that it is losing uh, or at least certainly not winning, that the Spanish, the Spanish public opinion is already turning against the war, that the politicians in Spain are beginning to turn against the war. Again, let me stress that guerrillas do not have to defeat, guerrilla armies do not have to defeat the adversary. They, they, they need not win. They just have to make sure they do not lose because this is a war that's fought as much on the battlefield as it is in politics. And by 1898, the Cubans are now draining Spanish morale to sustain continued military operations in Cuba. It is at this point, it is at this point that American officials now come to the realization, and this is get back to the earlier discussion, that the denouement to the war for independence may very well be Cuban independence. In other words, that Spain may be forced to cede sovereignty of Cuba to the Cubans. In which case, that kind of triggers that warning that if Spain, if, the, if there were prospects of Spain trying to transfer the, the possession of Cuba to a third party, in this case, the Cubans, uh, that would be the instant signal for war. And indeed, in April, uh, when the Cubans would not make peace with the Spanish, the United States declares war. Um, and what's kind of overlooked in these discussions is that the United States declares war, and it's, it's in McKinley's message, uh, a war of hostile constraint on both parties, not just Spain, but both parties. This was a war that the United States declared to neutralize two competing claims of sovereignty as a means to establish a third one. So the idea that is that is that is that is so prominent, so prominent a theme in the American in the historiography of the United States, and certainly historiography of U.S. Uh, diplomatic and, and foreign relations, that the United States went to war against Spain to help Cuba win its independence is <laughs> to use to use the vernacular of today, that's false history. And and so uh, the American purpose in 1898 was, in point of fact, to preclude the Cuban claim for independence and make the, to, that is, to, to, to obstruct the Cuban rise and establish a sovereign nation. So I think that is a good transition. It's an excellent transition for our second conversation. If you enjoyed this interview, I highly recommend coming back to hear about the legacy of 1898 and U.S. intervention in the years to come. Thank you so much, Professor Perez. 